The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everybody, and welcome. It is such a treat to see some faces that I haven't seen in person for a while. Some hair that's grown out. Everybody looks fantastic. I'm Vanessa Southern. I'm the senior minister of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco, and it's lovely to be here today with Wonder Dave, Dave Crady, who's our worship associate this morning, and Alan Biggs, our percussionist, who's our musician, who was supposed to play with one of his partners in creation, but that partner had an injury or a conflict. But in a Sunday, on a Sunday when the service is enough is enough, it seemed preordained by the mystery of the universe that we would dig deep into the presence of just one musician, and already that has borne true. So it's great to have you with us. Special thanks. Sorry for the deep breathing. I sound a little like Darth Vader, but we are taking precautions. Just so you all know, with the masking, I'll be unmasked for the sermon, but have a negative antigen test. We have a, an air purifier right beneath the place where I'll be preaching. And next week, when we have a service of installation, the preacher will have a negative RT-PCR before she goes maskless. So we are trying to take all the precautions we can. Everybody who will be in this space will be double vaccinated so that we can be together and be a little bit sure of body and spirit. And we have people here with us who've been part of the decision team who's been thinking about all the health consequences and we thank you for that. I wanna thank other folks who are making this Sunday possible. Eric Shackelford and Shuli Ong, who are behind the cameras, Jonathan Silk, who is pulling together all the pieces of this worship, recorded and live. Joe Chapeau is on the chat, so if you have questions, please ask him because he can help get you what you need, hopefully. Thomas Brown and Dan have made the building welcoming and safe for us in the logistics of this morning. Amy Kelly has brought gorgeous nature abloom here, a reminder of one of the things that is more than enough in our world and in our lives. And we thank also our Zoom coffee hour hosts. Thanks to everybody. Thanks to all of you and all of you who are joining us from home, from wherever you are. And so we light our candle as we have every week since all of this began to bring all of you who are not in this space right now here symbolically in spirit until such time as we can be gathered again. And now we're going to, well, those of you at home are going to sing. Those of you here are invited to hum Spirit of Life, number 123 in our hymnal. So please also thanks to Ben Rudiak Gould, who's our song leader this morning, who will lead us through this and other parts of worship. And Mark Sumner behind the scenes of it all. Oh, 
heart all the stirrings of compassion. Blow in the wind, rise in the sea, move in the hand, giving life the shape of justice. Roots hold me close, wings set me Dave and I please in saying the words of the chalice lighting that are written in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Hello everyone, my name is Dave and I am a worship associate here at UUSF. If this is your first time watching, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can follow along in the order of service which is available in the description of this video if you are watching online or in your hands if you are here in person. It is so lovely to see you. Um, the order of service uh, also lists upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect, including our Zoom coffee hour, which takes place after service. Please join in anything that interests you. The first thing I want to share with you is this. When I think back to January of this year, it seems simultaneously recent yet long ago. And as a parent of a two-month-old newborn at the time, my memories are most definitely foggy. But I do remember starting small group ministry last January as an experiment to connect with others outside of our pod during the pandemic. Not knowing what challenges the year had in store for me and my loved ones, small group created an invaluable space for me to lean into for support. Being relatively new to UUSF, small group ministry provided a unique way for me to connect with a diverse group of other folks in the congregation. Group meetups combined deep listening with thoughtfully guided discussion topics, that left me feeling heard and opened my heart and mind to new perspectives. And to be honest, of all of my meetings on Zoom in the last year and a half, this was one that actually left me feeling recharged at the end each time. I highly recommend small group ministry to anyone looking to broaden their spiritual perspective 
and form meaningful connections with others in our community. In the Zoom coffee hour today, there will be a breakout room for those who want to ask questions about small group ministries. The signups are through the end of the month. Please consider joining and getting connected. Uh, I want to call your attention to two more upcoming events. Our Human Rights Working Group will be heading a meetup for folks to walk together in the Women's March that will, take, that will take place next Saturday. To march with UUSF, meet at the corner of Grove and Van Ness at 10.20 a.m. Be prompt. The march lineup starts at 10.45, two blocks away. Uh, next week's 11 a.m. worship will be a rebroadcast of a service we did six weeks into the pandemic lockdown last year and a strange and gorgeous trip back in time to what really, really feels like a lot longer ago, actually, uh, and a rate to reflect where we have been in this journey. Then at 3 p.m., we will have the installation of Reverend Vanessa. There is a registration form to fill out if you want to be here in person in the sanctuary or overflow room but also the entire service will be live streamed. Either way, we look forward to an afternoon of celebration. It's now time for our meditation on breathing. The words are in the order of service. I invite you through singing or humming or just listening to get lost in the peace and enter more deeply into this hour and wherever on this vast planet it finds you. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in. If you will, please rise as you're able in body or spirit, and let's say together the promises that we make to each other here, the words of covenant, and then we'll sing together our doxology. The words are printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. From all that dwell 
Well, below the skies, let songs of hope and faith arise. Let peace, goodwill on earth be sung through every land by every tongue. todos bajo el gran sol sur esperanza Recognizing that there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have since July of 2019, for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps. And the inhuman treatment of immigrants and refugees repeated this week against our Haitian siblings. For this repeat of some of the most shameful chapters in our nation's and our world's history of xenophobia, racism, and greed, we ring the gong seven times for this week of days in which human dignity continues to be dismissed and our responsibility for that as citizens of this country. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This last week, 53,923 people died of COVID-19 globally, and 111,268 oh, 11, in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses. Each one of these preci precious and worthy people were deserving of health and safety, and we hold with gratitude all who are working around the world to produce, distribute vaccines, and administer them, and to call ourselves to the work that health and safety for one nation requires health and safety and vaccination for all nations. May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and prayers, and may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week in whatever ways we can. Invite us into a time of prayer and meditation. 
The prayer I'm about to share is modeled after, for those of us who have been in, around for a while, a well-known and much-cherished prayer by the former minister, Reverend Max Coots, of this movement. It's written by Claire Feingold Thorne, who was starting her internship with me about 17 years ago, around this time of year. And as we look this morning at the notion of enough, and the antidote for the not-enoughness in life, the feeling of that. We look with gratitude at the blessings we already have, and in this light-hearted prayer, that is a reminder of our friends, all of them, their wild and complicated beauty for which we give thanks. So in a spirit of gratitude, we enter into this moment together. Spirit of life, ground of all being beyond naming and knowing. Let us give thanks for a bouquet of people. We give thanks for children like Tulips and iris, they multiply around us, making the world ever more filled with color and beauty and new life. May we bless them as they replant themselves ever further from us, knowing that they need their own space to grow into. We give thanks for generous friends, as constant in bloom as echinacea, and whose gifts lift up our bodies and spirit. We give thanks for feisty friends as indomitable as geraniums, and for continuous friends who, like bittersweet and ivy, hold on and never let go, and can never be gotten rid of. For crotchety friends, as prickly as rose bushes, their beauty a secret that's only discovered through careful gardening. For surprising friends who, at first glance, seem dour and then blossom into joy as quickly as forsythia, for funny friends, silly as snapdragons, and serious friends, complex as chrysanthemums, and comfortable friends, their gentle presence as soothing as the sweet smell of lilac. For stormy weather friends who stand by us in hard times like Lily of the Valley that cannot be deterred by shade or shadow. For old friends nodding like sunflowers in the evening time. And young friends coming on fast as flocks. For friends as unpretentious as dogwood and as persistent as Pachysandra, as steadfast as Azalea, 
and who, like snowdrops, can be counted to see you through the winter and remind you that spring always comes. For loving friends who wind around us like wisteria and embrace us, despite our blights and wilts and witherings, and finally, finally, for forget-me-not friends gone, but never forgotten. Their beauty lives on in our memory and hearts. For this bouquet of people who brighten our lives each day in their own way, we give thanks. Amen. Today's service is about the concept of enough, uh, which is a tricky concept for me. And honestly, I'd go so far as to say for most Americans, I'd say one of our defining traits as a nation is aspiration. The concept of striving for more and not settling is so American to me that saying 
this is enough, feels foreign when it comes out of my mouth. Uh, our pop music asks for more, 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 give me more, says never enough. Capitalism itself demands constant growth. I have been staring at excess since I was a child and Robin Leach wished us all champagne wishes and caviar dreams. That was the goalpost for a nation of young, upwardly mobile dreamers. These are all thoughts I had after Reverend Rush Southern asked me to come up with times where I have felt enough, felt I had enough, felt I was enough. When asked the question about times I felt enough, I thought of lack, of blind ambition, instead of times where I was content. And this is something I probably need to discuss in therapy. <laughs> so I did a hard reset and thought about the actual assignment. The last time I felt the way she described slash enough was when I was eating tamales with a friend at work. We'd both been pulling 60-hour weeks. I was routinely skipping lunch because you can eat when you're dead or something. Uh, and here's the deal. Uh, there is an amazing tamale place near where I work in Oakland called Tamaleria Azteca. I am happy to plug them for free right now. Uh, it's a drab gray building with one window where you order your tamales. Their menu is five kinds of tamales and nothing else. Uh, you are given your salsa in a plastic bag tied in a knot and the food is amazing. Uh, it was an incredibly busy day at work. My coworker and friend and I, we had been burning the candle at both ends for about a month. Uh, and at that point, I needed food. Uh, not just in the way that humans need food to survive, but like in an existential way. Like I needed to sit down and eat so I could feel like a person again. That was enough, it turned out. A small break and some tasty food, just taking the time to stop and relax with my friend. When I reflect on other times I felt like I had enough in this life, turns out food is often involved. Uh, I think of being a kid at family reunions, staring at a bountiful potluck, how it felt to have everyone together in front of a spread of pies and hot dish. I'm Minnesotan, it's a thing, look it up. Uh, or more recently, when my friend Kate got featured on Netflix's comedy lineup, a group of us took her out to pizza. And in that moment, whatever goals the rest of us were pursuing fell out of focus. It was enough for all of us to be there together, celebrating her success. There are, of course, times that didn't involve food. A few years back, when my grandfather was in the hospital in Florida, my two uncles and I went down to see him, but my mother couldn't come because my father was in cancer treatment at exactly the same time and he needed her by his side. My father told her to go, despite the fact that even doing the most basic of tasks was nearly impossible for him. My mom knew she had to stay by her husband's side. As my grandfather got progressively worse, and it became obvious he was going to die and my mom couldn't be there, I felt like a stand-in for her. At one point, I held the phone up to my grandfather as he and my mother said their final goodbyes. 
In a heartbreaking phone call, I saw a lifetime of love. And one phone call was enough because it had to be. The common thread in all of these experiences is that I was either forced or compelled to slow down, to wait. The flow of life had been interrupted, and in these moments there is no great striving, no seeking what's next. These moments were enough. So instead of champagne wishes and caviar dreams, may we all have a tamale, a bag of salsa, a slice of pizza, or a phone call when you need it the most. May we all have time with those dear to us, small celebrations. May we be able to go where we are needed. May we be enough.
Our reading this morning is a story that Jewish philosopher Martin Buber apparently told, but it's also a story from the Hasidic tradition. It's a story of a man, Rabbi Isaac of Krakow. One night, the rabbi has a dream. It's a dream in which God tells him to leave home and to travel to Prague. There, beneath a bridge in the city, he will find a great treasure buried. Isaac doesn't normally heed such superstitious things, but when he has the dream a third time, the rabbi begins to wonder and takes a long journey to the faraway city. After many days of travel, the rabbi finally arrives in the city of Prague, and after much searching, finds the bridge in his dream, the one underneath which the treasure is supposedly buried. Unfortunately, soldiers guard the bridge day and night, and Isaac cannot dig for the treasure without attracting their attention. He waits for hours and then days for his chance, but it doesn't come. So one day he gives up and begins to head home. He decides to walk under the bridge one final time on his way out of the city, and as he does so, a soldier calls out to him. Old man, he says, I've seen you hanging around here a lot. What are you doing? I've had a dream, the rabbi said. God told me to go to Prague and that there would be treasure buried beneath a bridge there. Funny, the soldier replies. I once had such a dream. God told me that I should go to Krakow and look up a rabbi and that I too would find great treasure buried beneath his hearth. Thanking the soldier, the rabbi returned home and there dug beneath the soil at his hearth and found treasure where it was always hidden. Here ends our reading.
Years ago, I read a book, I think it was Juliet Shore's The Overworked American, although in some Marie Kondoing moment, I gave the book away. I'm pretty sure it was her, and she talked about this point in American history where there was an increase in industrialization, but particularly mechanization and efficiencies, all of which were making it possible for the American worker to get the same amount produced in a lot shorter time. And so there was this fear and articles written and public debate about the dangerous possibility of, quote, the problem of leisure. What would Americans do with all that leisure? And a bit of the fear, I'm sure, no doubt, was part of that baked-in Puritan-influenced culture that we all inherit that worries that souls and idle hands would be up to no good with so much free time. And somewhat around the same time, also, there was this promise, too, that with it invention of vacuum cleaners and dishwashers and all these modern American appliances becoming available, that women would be freed from so much housework. What would she do with all that free time? Neither reality materialized. There was no problem of leisure. It turns out that a vacuum cleaner didn't make things easier either. It just, it turns out, raised the standards of what a clean floor or a clean carpet looked like. The standards of a good housewife just got inflated, as did the average work week. Perhaps as people decided that what they'd like was some more stuff, and so demand went up for production and desire to work those hours, and so on. Two examples of this ever-moving goalpost of enough. As Dave rightly named, enough isn't something that we Americans seem to get. It's something we struggle with, as he observed about himself. It's it's true for most of us that that word isn't easily in our vocabularies, this idea of enough. In 1997, filmmaker John DeGraff made a documentary entitled Affluenza. It was a surprise hit, and it was followed by a sequel, Escape from Affluenza, and a book that he co-wrote with two other authors on the topic, Expanded all named, of course, for this imaginary virus that was where influenza and affluence met. The documentary framing itself as about this strange illness that was laying the body and soul of America low. It had symptoms like shopping fever and swollen expectations and community chills, and industrial diarrhea. And chief among the causes was mistakenly confusing the good life with the goods life. All the piling up of stuff and the wrong trade-offs to secure that stuff. It was killing us, he said.
And there were signs of our struggle all around, and there were ways to treat it too. And our planet and our children and our own joy and satisfaction were hanging in the balance. Simplification as a movement got a big push from the movie and its success, and right now is about the 25th anniversary of when the first documentary was starting to film. We know now, of course, with complete clarity that consumption, our consumption is choking the planet. Back then, the stat he used in one of the documentaries was that everyone, if everyone in the world lived the way the average American did, that we would need three more planets to sustain that lifestyle. I mean, that stat must be significantly higher now. And the truth remains, we still only have one planet struggling to breathe. We know all of that. And as Henry David Thoreau once wrote, there's the risk that your possessions possess you, right? That you have to keep a job you don't like to pay for their upkeep or storage. <laughs> that you lose sleep when they get broken or dented or worrying about paying the bill for the fix of all that. Intellectually, we know that too. And we also know by now that our addiction to the rush of that momentary satisfaction from stuff is short-lived and Sisyphusian and breeds another desire for another hit of those consumptive endorphins to keep us going. And how all of that desire, well, that it hides a deeper emptiness that we know can't be filled with toys or status symbols, or even largely external accomplishment. We don't need a lot of stuff to be happy. We know the basics of what makes a person happy. We don't need to read about it. We just need to pay attention to the body and the spirit that knows when it feels deep satisfaction and joy, the kind that lasts. But somehow it isn't seeking, sinking in the not-enoughness. It remains. Maybe, Dave, you hit the nail on the head when you pointed out how that idea is such an un-American concept. How unambitious it feels to talk that way about enough. As if ambition is measured in tons. <laughs> or in things you can buy, but not in the moments that the credit card ads call rightly priceless. I think it's true. I think enoughness isn't in our vocabulary, except as sucker that we offer the less well-off or the loser's surrendered stance. I have enough. But we've lost the whole sense of what Sir Thomas Mallory was getting at when he famously said, enough is as good as a feast. It is. Literally. Literally.
Last Friday night, our daughter and our nephew out of the house, my husband and I went out for a date dinner. We treated ourselves. We had a main course each and an appetizer and two glasses of wine and a dessert. And on the way home, I realized I was incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> because I'd eaten too much. It's funny, right, that our sense of a feast, if we think about it, is the sense of overflowing that demands and invites us to kind of shove it all in. But enough would have been much better that night than what I did. And I, I realize that's always the case, right? I mean, think about it. A fun party that goes on too late is just exhausting. And a great hike that goes on too long feels more like a death march. And even a back rub, if it goes on too long, it starts to hurt or chafe, right? But enough, enough is perfect. It's like the sculptor who removes everything extraneous until what's left behind doesn't need anything more when it's just perfection, what it's meant to be. But we don't normally, I don't think, think of enough that way. Fueled maybe by this consumption model that feeds our economic system and the messages that come out of it, they spill into so much else of what we do and how we think. And the cost of all of that isn't just a di indigestion after a night out at dinner, right? Here's an example. I have a daughter. She's a senior in high school. She's beginning the college process this year. Never has the culture of not enough shown up so regularly to me. First, there is the anxiety that the kids bring into the process that there is one college that will make you happy, make your life extraordinary. That despite all of the data that proves otherwise. Data. This despite the fact that our country is one of the places that people flock to from all around the world for university education because we have such an abundance of options. This despite the fact that if you pick up a rock right now and you throw it outside the doors of this church, you are likely to hit two institutions at least of learning that will give you a very, very respectable education. Among the middle class and upper middle class kids that I was and that I am watching, there is also a steady drumbeat of not enough in the entire process. There's fear that their grades are not high enough or their SAT scores, that their extracurriculars are not robust enough or their leadership or volunteer work, that their language skills are not as advanced as they might be or they're not taking advanced enough mathematics. And where's the instrument they play, or the social justice cause that they led a rally for, or the social ill that they designed an app to fix? And parents and books 
talk about packaging your kid like they're a product, not a person, spinning their story to catch the eye of an admissions officer. And the sports camps or the outside teams that families run themselves ragged to go to or pay for so the kid can get into one of those athlete loopholes, if they're going for one of the real ones. Meanwhile, kids from families that are not college-educated are feeling like they will never be enough too, right? Because they don't know the vocabulary around education and this process, because they don't have the money to attend or fear that they will struggle once they are in school, and the need to hide, they think, what they do not know and who they are and who they are not. All of these kids, no matter what their background, hearing in a thousand ways just in this process alone that they are not enough. And it isn't new. I mean, sadly, I have been taken back 31 years ago into a place I locked away. I still remember the woman. I showed up at some alumni club in New York, and she was there with her ridiculous striped socks in the school colors of the college that she was interviewing me for. And she asked me what I did for extracurriculars, and I listed a couple. And then she asked me what else, and I listed a couple of other things I did was interested in, which apparently wasn't enough, because there was only one question. I remember her asking and asking and asking like a nightmare. What else? What else? What else? Never, never did that woman ask me, tell me what you love. Tell me what you love about being on the volleyball court or about your biology class. Tell me why you do it. How does it make you feel? What did you learn about yourself and the world as part of this? What are your hopes for life? Tell me about your family. What have they taught you? All I heard was that for her, the list of what I had done was not enough. And I remember leaving somewhat hollowed out by a person who saw only what I did and what was missing. Not enough. And for all the kids, think about it. I occupy an enormous number of places of privilege. Think about for all the kids who are non-white, who are not gender normative, who are not fully abled, who are not straight, who are not citizens, who are not all the things that we define as normative for all the people. The weight is crushing. And all of us fighting to prove again and again that we are enough it's not new, and it's apparently not going away easily. Which is why I feel like saying this morning that as religious people, as people who are determined to live lives of intention and meaning and meaning-making and transform ourselves 
and by transforming ourselves, the world around us, I think we need to start intentionally reclaiming the spiritual practice and discipline in a world that is not in favor of it, apparently, of claiming and reclaiming and defining enough and the beauty and the perfection of enough. As a fierce religious premise, as a creed, <laughs> even. And we can begin with the simple questions that I asked Dave this morning, the ones I kind of wish that woman had asked me in that interview. What gives you joy? What fills you up? When in life, when you have it, when you do it, when you're in the presence of it, do you feel satisfied and whole? When is it that you know in your belly and your bones that you need or want nothing more? than just that. Who makes you feel like enough? And then step into that. With all your heart and soul, stubborn determination, step into that and throw your arms around it. The spiritual truth told in so many stories and so many ways is that what we need, we already have, right? And who we are is enough. Dorothy's companions, they were already enough on the way to Oz. And the rabbi, the rabbi had what he needed right beneath his hearth and in the one standing on it. The world can use more justice, it can use more love. It can use more sharing of the resources that we already have. All of that is true. And I think with all the free time, the time that's freed up from overworking and overconsumption, or caring for our things, or trying to be enough and exhausting ourselves trying, I think with all that free time, we'd have time for all those other things that really need us plowing into them. And the real and inexhaustible heart for the work. So may we live into the truth of enough. And may that truth set us free. Amen. Loveliness to sell 
as music like a curve of gold. Scent of pine trees in the rain, eyes that love you, arms that hold. And for your spirit still delight, holy thoughts that star the night. Spend all you have for loveliness to buy and never count the cost. For one singing hour of peace, count a year of strife well lost. And for a breath of ecstasy, give all you have been And now, let's rise and body our spirit wherever you are. Feel the connection to one another before we go out into our week ahead. So in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us out from within us. Be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.